want to go to there. Snipe! Hi, for those of you who just tuned in, everyone here is a crazy person. Are we having fun yet? <laughs> yes. Thirty Helens agree. Never mind. Maybe the dingo ate your baby. It's kind of flying, actually. Would you believe it? And you beautiful tropical fish. Don't mention the war. Clear eyes, put hearts, get Hello and welcome to the Televerse, Sound on Sites TV podcast. This is Kate Kulzik and I'm joined as ever by Simon Howell. Simon, how are you? Uh, well, I wasn't just at Comic-Con, so I don't have anything exciting to report this week. How about you? You uh, were, I think you may have just been at Comic-Con. I may have just been at Comic-Con, that's true. Um, this week we'll be having our Comic-Con wrap-up, and uh, Whitney McIntosh, who was also there for Sound on Sight, uh, covering completely different uh, realm of the TV sphere than I was, uh, will we'll be joining us to, to talk about you know the whole experience at this at the con this year that'll be coming at the end of the podcast um yeah it was a busy week because not only was it comic-con um but also we resolved our itunes issue which (laughs) took a lot of effort behind the scenes um here's the thing though um so thank you to itunes for helping us out so now you can once again find us in if you search for itunes we exist again but what doesn't exist is any of our ratings or reviews after 2013. So, yes. thank you is one of the phrases involving you. I'd like to direct at iTunes this week. It's it's not actually iTunes' fault. It's Blueberry's fault. Um, but yeah. So so if if you've left us a review or a rating in the past, it doesn't need to just be a review. We had 31 ratings and now we have eight. Um, oh man! So that really does not help our iTunes rating, ranking, <laughs> um, or our self confidence, or that. But um, but though you know, it does help our self confidence, my self confidence, and by proxy, I'm extending this to you. Is that at Comic Con, I got to meet a couple of our listeners, which was Woo! super amazing and cool. It was Andre and Hannah, and um, so thank you guys so much for coming over to talk. And uh, of course, at, at Austin, I also got to to meet Beth. Beth, you beautiful imaginary scorpion. Um, so <laughs> it's good, you know, it's wonderful to actually meet some of our listeners in person and, and talk and hang out a little bit. Um, and we'll talk more a little about that as part of the Comic Con experience when we get to our wrap up. But but yeah, I just wanted to throw that out at the beginning here. Very excited. We're back up in iTunes and easy to find and all of that. Less excited <laughs> that all of our, almost all of our ratings and reviews have disappeared. So, um, <sighs> if it's not too much trouble, it would be super helpful. Um, if 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 you've left us a rating or review in the past, just like go check and see if it's yeah. still there. Or or if you haven't and you think you might want to, uh, even if it's well, no, even if there's some criti- some light criticism involved, if there's heavy <laughs> criticism, I can't imagine you've even made it. This to far. this point of the podcast yeah. so but yeah but those can be fun too i they can be <laughs> um they often aren't but they can be uh so yes we would very it would help us to not be it would help us to be more visible in the internetosphere yeah which is the thing but uh anyways i'm focusing on the positive though this week there's lots of great tv to talk about we're uh i'm still on a bit of a high meaning um i'm tired <laughs> from comic-con <laughs> Um, but we're going to dive in with, with a decently full week in TV, 
couple things I didn't manage to get to because Comic-Con, but uh, a lot of stuff that there is good to talk about. So we'll just go straight to that, and we'll have more listener feedback and everything next week um, when we should be back into the normal swing of things. But, uh, but for now, let's take a break and come back with our Week in Comedy, yes? Yes! Crazy, crazy, does this crazy Make up for adjustment on the verse first one's plan that you want to do all I want but I don't This week in comedy, I'm going to preview Married Season 2. Unfortunately, I ran out of time with travel, so I will not be previewing Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Um, I will be talking about it next week. I, I have the first five here, and I will have seen it by then. I've only seen the first scene. The first scene is entertaining, of, of the pilot. Can, can, can I just say the only thing I know about Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, other than its awful title and the involvement of Dennis Leary, is the fact that Dennis Leary really wants David Bowie to guest next season. And I'm sorry, David Bowie, if you show up on Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, but decline to show up on Hannibal, I will have lost some respect for you. <laughs> well, uh, you know, again, we'll talk about Hannibal in our Comic-Con thing. I'm less hopeful that that's going to be a thing that could happen because they, fil- they finished filming for season three. So, <sighs> Shush! Anyways, comedies, happy thoughts. Um, so yes, I'll preview Married Season 2, which I did get a chance to watch some of. Um, I'll talk a little bit about Seven Days in Hell. We'll both dive in with Why with Hannibal Buress, which had its pilot, 8th of July celebration. Then Key and Peele's premiere, Y'all Ready for This? Then Inside Amy Schumer, which had its finale, <laughs> Three Buttholes. Um, and uh, again, next week, I-, I didn't get a chance to watch the CW pilot Dates, which is actually a British comedy that they've imported. I will be talking about that next week. Again, once I recover from Comic-Con. Also coming next week, Wet Hot American Summer, first day of camp on Netflix. Very excited about that. But first up, Married is starting this week on FX. It is not uh, migrating to FXX like You're the Worst, um, but it will be airing on on Thursdays over over on FX. I've seen the first three episodes of the season, and I actually really liked them. Um, I, this is much more in keeping with the sort of the tone and the comedic sensibilities of the end of the season rather than the beginning of, of the season, which I know we had um, we weren't quite as as on board with the start of the season as as some others were. the The use of the cast is very strong. Jenny Slate is getting a lot to do, as is. Um, Brett Gellman. There's a sequence involving a uh, very prestigious preschool situation that is uh, particularly delightful, and I really like some of the issues they get into with, um, uh, with you know, there's some of their family members. Uh, Judy Greer gets some good stuff to play with um, in regards to her mother and her stepfather. Um, yeah, it, it's it's again, it's a really fun uh, first three episodes. I. I watched them back to back to back and was very glad to be in that world again. Nat Faxon and Judy Greer are so, so fabulous in the main roles. And it's nice to really get to see them again, like we said last year, to get to see them play this kind of material and to get material worthy of them because they're so frequently they, they pop up for one or two things here or there and don't really get a lot of juicy material. So it's, it's great. It just makes me happy that there's a show on TV uh, that's really letting them do stuff. Or, or in the case of Judy Greer, just outright getting edited out of blockbusters as apparently keeps happening to her. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I from what I rec- from what I remember of Married season one, I feel like its greatest crime was just not being "You're the Worst." Like they, <laughs> they premiered at the same time, and one just 
went leaps and bounds over the other, even though Mary ended up being perfectly solid. So it's not, I'm, I'm glad actually that they're, that they're premiering at different times on different channels and getting a chance to sort of spread their wings. <laughs> but yeah, it, it's a strong start of the season. And I look forward to talking about the, the first episode next week with you on the podcast. Um, but let's move on to seven days in hell, which aired on, on Saturday on HBO and was delightful. Um, you haven't had a chance to see this yet, Simon, but you got to for peen on the screen in 15. Oh, snap. There's I had no idea. so much peen on the screen. Um, animated dong, uh, partial dong. There's there's a lot. So um, it's it's rather entertaining. And like, Ken Harrington is, plays an idiot in this. And he does a pretty spectacular job of it. Like the whole thing, I would say, is not like laugh out loud, bust a gut funny. But it just, I was just delighted as I was watching it. And, and I do think it po- probably could have been a little better with some tweaking, but it's just, it's one of those things that just makes me happy that it exists and uh, that this is the kind of thing that HBO is interested in doing a 40 minute fake documentary uh, about a uh, sports documentary about a seven day long tennis match at Wimbledon. Um, yeah. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And you should totally check it out, Simon. So you're telling me that Kit Harrington plays a character who knows nothing. It's indubitably. And that's a that's an inside joke there for the for the watchers. You'll get it once you watch it. All right, I got it. Okay. I mean I don't got it, but I got that I don't got it. Yeah. Um speaking of got that I don't got it, let's talk about why with Hannibal Buress, the pilot is eighth of July celebration. And I'm having trouble with this one because I'm not sure if it's just the fact that my I got home from the airport at four in the morning today and watched this this afternoon, so I'm still kind of out of it. I, I was having trouble with this. I'm not, it, I wasn't really laughing and I kept falling asleep. And some of that is jet lag <laughs> and Comic-Con. Um, and some of that is also just, it didn't grab me. Um, I also watched uh, last week tonight today and had no trouble staying awake and um, engaged for that. So again, I don't know how much of this is just being out of it from Comic-Con and how much of it is just not quite having a sense of what the show is yet. What what did you think? Yeah. Here's the thing. Hannibal Buress is hilarious. His last stand-up special live in Chicago was incredible. He's so funny on so many things. Uh, he's a good actor. Uh, really interesting screen presence. Uh, really charismatic. And this show is awful. At least, or at least, this first episode was awful. I mean, it's being filmed more or less on the fly, um as sort of a you know in in sort of basically at like last week tonight pace of like reacting to stuff that happens in the week and in having these sketch segments and it's very clear that they're working it out as they go along i really hope it'll get better but i i just feel like his persona is such a bad match for this like when he's just giving off these like Mitch Hedbergy one-liners like some of it is okay but then when he has to introduce film segments and then transition into them. And that this, I mean, the film segments themselves are not funny, which doesn't help, but this whole having this sort of heightened aspect of this happened. And now we're going to watch. This is just such a bad fit for his comic sensibility. And I'm very surprised that this is the format that he and the producers landed on to think was a good fit for him there he has a great great show in him that he top lines but based on this first episode at least this is not it at least not without some serious tweaking 
Is this something that you're going to keep watching over the next few weeks to see how they adjust? Or is this one that you're just going to kind of like step back and check in at like, I don't know, a month or two down the line? I feel like because of the format, um, if if they manage to, to, to pull off a film segment or two that's really great, a la Key and Peele or Amy Schumer, uh, and I can see, oh, now they're starting to do things that actually work. Um I mean, for instance, the, the that whole that whole sketch about um, how he was trying to mimic uh, this guy who just didn't answer questions for the cops. Like, you can see why everyone involved thought it was funny, um, and it's certainly topical. But it's it's it's, it's just kind of there. Like, it makes its point. It's not funny. It's incisive, kinda, but it's kind of a one note thing. It doesn't really go anywhere, but it does keep going. Um, so I feel like it maybe they'll land on on a comic rhythm that works for him, and if so, I think you'll see that in bits that come out and maybe start to go viral or whatever. God, I can't believe I just said that. Uh, <laughs> but if if that doesn't happen or if I don't hear any buzz about it, I feel like it will. This I I almost hate to say it, but if it doesn't get better, it's gonna feel like his Mulaney. Like, Oof. like there's another very very funny guy, like demonstrably funny guy married to just absolutely 100% the wrong idea. And I hope to be proven wrong, but that's how it feels to me right now. That's interesting. Well, I'm definitely going to watch at least one more uh, next week and see how not being exhausted from Comic-Con helps things. Um, but yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. I was I was having some of those issues as well, watching. So you're not, you're not alone. And I look forward to hearing from our listeners. Um, let us know if there's something that we're just missing um, or if... You know, you also are having some trouble with with this marriage of of comedian with with approach and with tone and everything. So yeah. I, I I hate to drop an M bomb on him, but yeah, I expect more from Hannibal Burris. Yeah. Well, next up is Key and Peele, which has premiere. Y'all ready for this? And uh, we talked, we previewed the season last week, but uh, we figured we'd talk a little bit more in depth this week. Uh, what was the what were the sketches that were working for you? Really, just Terry's. I mean, I was. <laughs> I, I, having seen this episode early, I was not at all surprised to see that that was the sketch that I was seeing screen caps of and clips from everywhere uh, the day. At, like, I saw people's Facebook avatars change. I saw uh, the the inspiration for the original uh, hat hair situation, which I didn't realize was a real thing. Um, I was not surprised at all to find out that that was the sketch that people were really glomming onto because other than that, uh, it was slim pickings for me this week. I, yeah, I mean, I like the anger translator with, you know, Savannah with Hillary Clinton. I thought that was, that was all right. Yeah. And I also liked the, um, the pirates sketch. See, I thought that was cute, but not at all funny. Like it was, yeah, like it, it, it was, it was, it was endearing, but I didn't laugh. Yeah, I but I you know, I I really enjoyed that one. Um I thought maybe it went on a little too long or it needed a different like button. Um but uh but that was just still, you know, again, it made me smile. It was something I wasn't necessarily expecting and so I, it's it's a nice um change of pace, a different kind of way to to do a feminism sketch. Um and so I appreciated it for that. But yeah, the Terry's didn't really work for me and so because they didn't I didn't ha- really have a, a particular like laugh out loud segment other than just again being very, you know, glad to see Luther and company back. 
Well, uh, from that sort of lack, lackluster, maybe, you know, mildly entertaining, but not as much as maybe we would hope for. Note, let's hopefully change pace a little bit with the Inside Amy Schumer finale, Three Buttholes. Um, we had the, uh, the, the Amy and her boyfriend uh, attempting some, some there's length, there's a lengthy trek, shall we say. Uh, we had uh, John Glazer starring as Cockblock. We had uh, the British accent, uh, the the boy, jerk boyfriend with the British accent. We had the smile uh, coach, um, also John Glazer. Also John Glazer. Uh, the 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 Amy Schumer having three buttholes, and of course we ended again with Bridget Everett singing a number as she has in each of the season finales. There was also some man on the street too, or woman on the street. Um, so what 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 worked for you here? Uh, I thought this was better than the last few episodes. It was nice for them to go out on a slightly stronger episode. There was no, like, huge knockout-of-the-park moments, but everything was pretty consistently amusing. I was thinking to myself throughout John Glazer's multiple appearances, man, John Glazer is really funny and is really great at selling pretty mediocre comedic ideas. He should really have his own show. And then I remember that he already did, which was Delocated, and I never watched any of it. And then I felt like a jackass. (laughs) So anyway, that happened while I was watching Inside Amy Schumer. Um, but I actually, I thought that the two sketches that he were in mostly worked because of him. Mm-hmm. Um, especially like the cock blocker thing should not have worked. And the smile thing was, was even hackier. And I thought that he just really sold it with his weird smile. Um, and just the constant, constant close-ups and his insistence that it was a good smile. And, uh, I don't know if it's just me and it's just passing seasons are getting me used to the idea, but I thought this was by far the best Bridget Everett segment. Yeah, it was the... It- it, and maybe it's she's also more comfortable on the show as well because I remember after the first one there was some some pushback ab- about it and there was some discussion of oh is she a comedian is she a burlesque performer what you know, you know all that stuff so yeah I, I thought this one was more fun and uh, you know like little details where she's asking the guy like what's your name no one cares like it was a bit more playful maybe and not because we know what to expect it doesn't play as much like shock comedy in the same way. Um, so yeah, I thought that that was one that I, I enjoyed more than the other two. It's just still not my, my brand of comedy, but I'm sure there are many Bridget Everett fans out there. I know she's getting a comedy central special, um, uh, coming up soon here. I absolutely agree about John Glazer. Um, I thought that the, the opening sketch was, Again, this has happened a couple times this season where it feels like it's an idea that hasn't been fully ex- explored or, or um, it, it's like the beginning of a sketch. It feels like this is a sketch in the workshop phase and I we shouldn't be seeing it yet. Yeah, like I was expecting I was expecting him to get in there and find like a mage yeah. and, and yeah. have to like and there was going to be like questing involved and, yeah. you know, trolls maybe. I kept but, waiting you know, for I, it to go to the next the next yes. level of the joke, and it that never happened. We have the wrong vocation here, Kate. <laughs> we should be coming up with elaborate cunnilingus sketches. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, nearly funny enough for that. Uh, but I but, apparently uh, feel confident to critique other people's. <laughs> yes, but I also I, there was also like, I mean, the, the episode really gets by a lot on sort of the geniality of the vibe, mm-hmm. and just like, especially like wrapping up the man on the street segments and the proposal at the end, like stuff that's it's like a that dose of cuteness to offset all the. All the the salty humor, I think, is is 
is not insignificant. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree uh, with that. And uh, yeah, I, I, like you've said previously, and I have to agree as much as I wish I didn't, but you're right. Um, the season started out much stronger than it ended. It, it did end solidly. It's not like it's, um, it's not like it became an unentertaining or a not funny show. It just started out so strongly that having a, a solid or mediocre finish feels like quite a letdown. But it's really um, the beginning of the season really was tremendous. And um, I, I look forward to whatever we're going to get next from Amy Schumer, her new film, but also next year with more inside Amy Schumer. Um, so what wins your week in comedy? Uh, out of what I watched, I will give it to... I'll give it to Schumer. And I'll give it to Marriage of the things I watched. Of the things that aired this week, I'd give it to Seven Days in Hell. Um, and we'll, we'll, talk, uh, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about some of this stuff next week. But for now, let's take a break and come back with our week in genre and drama. This week in genre and drama, I'm going to talk a little bit about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell uh, Arabella. Then you're going to talk about Mr. Robot Debug. Y yes, that's it has a whole title, but screw that title. Its title is Debug. Uh, sorry, <laughs> that's a conversation we had off mic. Yeah, you missed this whole thing, it's, it's, listeners. Yeah, if you're curious what I'm talking about, go to Wikipedia for Mr. Robot and look at what they're titling these episodes. And then you can just insert my eye roll there. Um, then we have the Rectified premiere, Hurrah, uh, Masters of Sex premiere, Parliament of Owls, Hannibal, Dolce, Humans, Episode 3, Unreal, Fly, and then we'll round things out with Halt and Catch Fire, Working for the Clampdown. So first thing, uh, first is Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. You're still not caught up on this. I just wanted to mention, because I said last week that I didn't necessarily see what people were connecting to. I see it now. It's. I really enjoyed this last episode, and um, the, I think it ends in such a meaningful or such a um, exciting way. Uh, that the twist that we get and the the progression of of Jonathan Strange really um, throughout the episode and what I anticipate we'll get next should be very interesting. The the stuff we get with uh, Lady Pole has been like sort of the back. Uh, backbone of the season and it's a little it's a little odd to have the show that's called Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell feel so much like no it's just Jonathan Strange's story Mr. Norrell feels like a bit of a non-entity non and um, I'm, I'm hoping that will change in the last couple episodes there's only seven episodes in the season as I understand it but um, but no I, I really connected with this episode and um, I hope to enjoy the ride through the end of the, of the season, but uh, I wanted to give props where it was due. And, um, I, I, 
I have the sense that this is the kind of show that will have a, a happy ending, and I hope I'm right. And if not, I'm going to be a little annoyed, but that's... Because what, you like happy endings. Because that's what they're, you know, that, that'll that be what... If they don't give a happy ending, then that will be what they were going for, and it will be very effective. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, so that's why I keep my fingers crossed. They have me very um, engaged with the characters at this point. So so well done, team, over at Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. How is Mr. Robot working for you? I, I haven't seen this episode yet. All right. Well, I, I'm not going to talk too specifically about this episode. I wanted to talk more generally about it. Considering last week, I didn't even know this show existed. <laughs> and then I just I was hearing about it left and right. I had no idea it was a USA series. I didn't really know what it was about or who was in it or anything. Um, and then I realized, hey, it's the new series co-starring Christian Slater about hackers and hacktivists. And it's on USA and people like it. <laughs> and that combination of, of like... How long has Christian Slater been trying to get on a show that people like? Years. Many, many years. Years and years. And I think I must have initially heard about the show months ago. And then I heard Christian Slater was in it. Was And I was like, map. Like, it immediately left the memory bank. Um, so, not fair. But true. And uh, anyway, as a result of a bunch of buzz and you mentioning it last week, I figured I should check it out. And... Uh, I, I have to say I'm enjoying it so far with reservations. I think it's it's very stylish. It owes a lot to David Fincher. Uh, I mean, not and not only because of the obvious Fight Club uh, thematic echoes with this notion of, of erasing uh, existing credit and possible hallucinated characters and the undertones of anarchism as well. Uh, it's so refreshing to have a lead character who believes in stuff, like who has, act, regardless of how you feel about those political convictions, he has some political convictions that are connected to the actual world, which feels unusual to me. Uh, sorry, connected to the actual contemporary world. Um, that feels weird. And when he's railing against Steve Jobs and railing against modern capitalism, which he usually does not do out loud, like that's a very bracing thing to have your character do on a TV series because it doesn't generally happen. Or if it does it's happening in a way that we're not meant to take seriously. And we are meant to take it kind of seriously. And that is a ledge to step out onto for a show. That's, that is a risk to take. Uh, and I really appreciate that. Um, the thing that isn't working for me so well so far is, uh, the fact is the, the main character. And I will say that Rami Malek, the lead, I think is really, really good and, uh, is very watchable. And he sells a very difficult character. It doesn't change the fact that, uh, the character does exhibit this extreme paternalistic streak, uh, especially towards the women in his life. Super that... paternalistic. Super paternalistic. And they and to be fair, in I think the second episode, um, his friend, the Porsche Doubleday character, does say, let me fail. Like, let, let me do these things. Uh, so it's nice to see that come out a little bit early, but it certainly has sort of sided with him, maybe in ways that, have not been totally intentional and it's, it's and it's hard to parse completely because the show's still in its infancy and the show is from his perspective so i'll be curious to see how or if they play with that more over time because it really is it's a superhero show it's just that his power is knowledge that's really it mm -hmm. um and uh in a way it's sort of like the unbreakable series that they apparently is going to be happening at some point except it's happening early except it's here and it's fine um so I, I feel basically what I'm trying to say is the show could become very obnoxious or extremely compelling or possibly both. 
and it's too early to tell which yet. Uh, but I'm certainly engaged, and I'm and hats off to USA for taking a chance on something that is so a million yards outside their wheelhouse. Yeah, the um, <laughs> yeah, when you say could become obnoxious, that mean like. Come on, the main character. It's, is, I mean, it's definitely a little bit obnoxious. Yeah, the, the the main character is just when I like you say I appreciate that they give him points of view and they give him um, things that he believes in and he uh, at least will preach about to himself. Um, I think they're very very simplistic and uh, to the point where I just I roll my eyes when he starts railing against you know the corporations and the da 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 da. da, da. It's like okay, but. That's all very like freshman year 101. What are you going to do to solve it? Are you just going to complain about it? Um, well, and that seems to be that's sort of the fulcrum of the show is how how much do you get involved? Like how far do you go in in pursuit of your beliefs? And I think also I think the thing that helps is that, and I would like to for them to delve into this more, is this notion that he does suffer from mental illness. Um, it would be nice to get more specifics on that because the show has been like he. Is he schizophrenic? Is he just extremely depressed? Like, we don't really know because, mm -hmm. the, like, the show hasn't made that clear and they haven't made that clear specifically in, in the scenes with the uh, with the counselor or the uh, or the therapist, the, the psychiatrist, yeah. the therapist. Uh, and they're they're kind of toying with that line in a way that is slightly uneasy. And again, sometimes it's compelling. Sometimes it's annoying. Um, it's. You know, as per usual on the, on the televers, I'm going to give major points, major points to major shows points. that are taking chances. And it's and this show is taking chances like left, right and center, um, even up to this third episode with some stuff that involves some of the supporting characters we haven't spent a lot of time with. Um, it's it's putting itself. It's definitely putting itself out there for for criticism. It's not playing it safe. And for that, I, I applaud it because USA is pretty much the definition of playing it safe. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we'll keep up with uh, Mr. Robot for a while then. Um, let's let's uh, move on, though, to our next show, and that is Rectify, which had its premiere. Hurrah. And this I saw first at the Austin <laughs> Television Festival and um, and really, really enjoyed the premiere. And even though I, mean, I know you weren't big on the coma thing from last the last, previous season premiere, I really liked that. Um, so I didn't like it quite as much as the previous premieres, but, um, but I am very glad to be back in this world. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, this episode? I don't know if I have too much to add to this that I didn't say last week. I'll just say that it's, I mean, it's been renewed. We should mention that. Which is for super a fourth exciting. Season, yeah. Which is ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's great. And it probably wouldn't happen if it was on any, anywhere else except the Sundance channel. I mean, it wouldn't exist if it was anyone, anywhere else on the Sundance channel, but mm -hmm. you know, in the... We're dealing with the very probable fact of no more Hannibal, and that's depressing. But hey, this experimental drama somehow gets to keep on ticking, and yep. we should be very, very happy about that. And there is absolutely nothing in this premiere or the episode the fault that follows that, that suggests that they're going to compromise at all. I mean, the entire show, uh, this was established, uh, and apparently in a recent interview, like, the entire show takes place over the course of, like, three weeks. That alone... I can't think of uh, of a parallel for. I mean, obviously, except twenty four. But like mm -hmm. the fact that it it delves into the into the moment and this and the emotion more than anything else, like th that alone makes it worth preserving. Yeah. Well, and again, excellent performances. Really like what we get 
with Abigail Spencer's character, like to to, to see Amantha working at the was it the Thrifty Nickel or something, um, the the store and and trying to figure out what's next and yeah, there's there's a lot that I'm really enjoying in this uh, these first two episodes. Um, but it's been a while, so I don't want to get too specific in case I spoil things. So I'm gonna leave it there and. We said a lot of how we feel about these episodes last week, and we'll we'll dive in a little, with a little bit more specifics um, next week when we aren't in danger of spoiling you guys. Um, so yes. now let's move on to the Masters of Sex premiere, the Parliament Parliament of Owls. Um, what it, now we can you know people have seen it, so we can just say they jumped like ten years in the future, and how awesome is that? I didn't realize it was that far. Um... Were we really in the in the mid fifties in the last in the last uh, at the end of the last season? Well, but think about the kids. I mean, the the fact of the kids being so much older is definitely the coolest part of the time jump because no one likes little kids; they're not interesting. <laughs> I mean, in real life, if you're their parents, they can be kind of interesting, maybe. Um, but on TV, they're generally not interesting. So to get to the part where they could potentially be interesting if they don't screw them up. Uh, <laughs> which is a whole other set of challenges. Uh, that's, I, I think, a good move. And it, it's a good move in other respects, too. Um, a, a lot of people seem to be kind of down on this episode, uh, from what I could tell, or, like, iffy on it. Um, I'm way more into... I'm, I'm into the sort of more madcap feel of of this episode, where there's just so much going on and so many balls in the air. And I, I feel like Masters of Sex is probably better off with a whole bunch of stuff going on rather than just a couple things. Mm. Um, it, it lets them sort of like grab at straws and see what sticks and, you know, all the usual kitchen sink metaphors you can throw in there. Um, that's, I feel like that's a good place for them. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. And um, I'm hoping that the direction we see in this premiere really delving into the sort of bizarre three person marriage of, of yes. you know, at the center of the show, remains the focus because uh, that's the relationship with Ginny and, and Libby is the most interesting part of the show to me at this point, because it doesn't seem like their relationship with Bill and Ginny is changing in any significant way or really has in quite a while. So um, I, I think that's such a smart move to jump forward to this time, you know, this stage of their relationships with each other and um and with this with the study to just kind of skip forward because they now in in this premiere they're saying like they, they've been doing this study for what was it like 12 years 15 years something like that mm -hmm. um so to just kind of skip forward and see you know the next time that things are going to significantly change that is of interest to me and um and i think this is a much more fruitful line of inquiry for libby than some of the other stuff they've given her in the past um so i'm looking forward to that I would have liked to have seen our everyone's favorite um, former prostitute um, show up, but I guess she didn't really fit with the the really isolated, pared down story they wanted to tell of like the weekend away. Um, so I'm hoping we'll get more of her next next uh, week. Uh, Betty, right? Annalie Ashford. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping we'll get more of her soon. But but yeah, that's sort of. I believe you mean Tony winner. Tony Annalie Award Ashford. winner Annalie Ashford, who we love. And think mm -hmm. is remarkable. Um, so yeah, that, that's sort of where I'm at with Masters of Sex. Um, the, the time jump's definitely been most beneficial to Libby, um, who is a character who, if you think about her position in in Bill Masters' life and the you know the story of the Masters, should really 
be on the sidelines or would traditionally be on the sidelines. And the show has, has completely refused to do that in, in each season. And that hasn't always worked, but damn, if I don't respect their efforts to keep her front and center. Yeah, definitely. And I think the performer can, I think she'll rise to the challenge too. Um, And it's nice, like you say, it's nice to see a show really working to give the other leg of their central triangle um, stories and not just right. letting the, her fade. The other woman who happens to be the wife. Who happens to be the wife, yeah. Um, any other thoughts on this premiere or shall we move on to Hannibal? Dolce. Let's do that. Um, so I, I first tried to watch this episode on Friday night, like late Friday after I'd been out. So I actually fell asleep watching this episode, um, which I know doesn't seem possible. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so that was some trippy shit. Uh, pardon my French. Yeah, this was great. No one was lying. And, um, I feel like it's not, it's not really how it happened, but it, it feels as though like Brian Fuller knew in advance that they were going to be getting bad news around this time. So they just started to jettison all the stuff that was even like vaguely commercially viable about this show and just went down the art house rabbit hole. And now we're getting whatever the show is now. And I'm so into it. I'm so 1000% into it. Um, it's <laughs> what even was this? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's why my review when it goes up, because because of Comic-Con, I thought I'd be able to get it up on Friday um, at like nope. Comic-Con. That did not happen. Um, when it goes up, it's going to be one of the shorter reviews because this episode is so experiential. Um, and I don't feel like I have much more new to say about this approach for the show than I haven't already said. I mean, it will surprise no one watching the show that this is the same director as directed the first three of the season. And I've just loved watching Vincenzo Natale grow um, in relation to this show in the first two episodes he directed last season. And then his four episodes from this season, I think they just pair so wonderfully together to tell the arc Mm -hmm. of, of Will and Hannibal's relationship post Mizumono. Um, But yeah, it's just, it, from the very first shot of this episode, I was like, oh, Natalie's back. Because we just get some, <laughs> you know, the blood into the the water. And it's just, this is a show, again, we said it with Rectify. This is, this is a show much more interested in how things feel than in anything else. And I love that about it. I also like that, and this is like kind of a more shallow thing, but I like that Hannibal went from like unofficially slash subtextually the gayest show on TV to being... 100% officially the gayest show on TV uh, this week. I mean, they took the, the concept of the sort of hallucinogenic slash kaleidoscopic um, impressionistic sex scene from last season, and then they went, they they cubed that. Which, <laughs> ah, again... cube! Oh, God! <laughs> I did not mean to do that. Oh, God, Sorry. I hate myself. I love that. Oh, I hate myself more than ever. Um... <laughs> God, but for yeah. those who don't know, the director of this episode also directed Cube, <laughs> the film Cube. You yeah. should watch it; uh, it's a good movie. <sighs> anyway, yeah, so that was amazing, and I don't have much more to say about that. I'm also after like three or four episodes of dealing with it, I'm finally okay with Joe Anderson's Mason Verger. Mm-hmm. Um, it took a little while, but I'm I'm finally okay with it. Any thoughts on Alana and Margot? Besides, you know, the sex scene is pretty. 
Um, no, I don't think that's really a thoughts a thoughts thing. I'm, this is why I'm glad I don't have a Hannibal podcast, so I don't have to tell you what I thought about that. I didn't think anything. It was just like, wow. I just got to sit back and marvel at the fact that this was a thing that aired on network television uh, ever. Yeah. Apparently, Brian Fuller got a letter from Standards and Practices complimenting and like congratulating them on that sex scene, which is just awesome. So, What, what do you mean congratulating him? Like, like on, good on, on you for... For doing a sex scene that they could air. It was that, you know, like that was that intense and and sensual and all this stuff, but fit within the zero nudity fit within the the guidelines. Um, So so they could, you know, and I think that's kind of amazing that the Sanderson practices people like, yes, we can air this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm actually I'm preemptively sad about the fact that. Um, it feels as though the second half of the season will sort of necessarily be less like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause I could happily watch another like eight episodes of just, uh, you know, t- Tarsum's nightmares yeah. being like shot into my ephemeral artery while I snort something. I don't know. You get the idea. Just yeah. ridiculous things happening for no reason. Uh, other than that someone decided to throw money at it. Uh, and I mean this in the best way possible. Uh, God bless you, everyone involved in the making of Hannibal. Any uh, thoughts on Gillian Anderson? Um, again, thoughts not really, not really playing a part. It's nice to see you're going to have a bit of fun um, in this episode and like pretend to be an idiot or like aloof or whatever. And uh, how she continues to be a part of this going forward, I really don't know or understand. But uh, more power to her. <laughs> Okay, well, the, let's move on to our next episode then. The, the Handleable Podcast, uh, this is our design that I co-host, should be up in your feed by the time you're hearing this. And if not, it will be up shortly. So just keep keep an eye out. Um, plenty of talk. I got to record live and in person with Sean this week because uh, he came down to Comic-Con as well. So that was really neat. So uh, there's no guests. It's just the two of us. But that'll be in your feed soon if it is not already. Um, but let's move on to our next episode, which is Humans, Episode 3. And... Uh, what did you yeah at first i was finding anita very uh somewhat disturbing because she was clearly lying about having taken the kid outside and now i think it's they're doing something much more interesting where there is the secondary or the primary really identity trapped within and maybe she's able to take over so maybe anita didn't take the girl outside at all but this other identity did um i'm i'm really digging humans what what did you think you know, I, I dig the vibe of humans, but I, I feel the need that to hit the fast forward button mm-hmm. on some stuff by now, because it feels like they're not shaking up the relationships uh, as quickly as I would like. Because um, I mean, I mean, it feels as though ultimately we're going to be in a place of sympathy for Anita or Alt Anita mm-hmm. or whatever, and we're still stuck on this gear of, uh, of, of you know, the, the matriarch finding her suspicious and, you know not not finding a place of trust and we know where ultimately some of these relationships are going and i i feel as though they're they're kind of stalling on some of those and also i'm finding that the the subplot's not that interesting i the william hurt one is all right and it feels as though this week we'll have to make some serious headway but the stuff with the murder investigation is kind of thin and i don't care about the other robots yet uh the ones who are you know sort of on the run and you know, loose patchwork family it's like again beats we've seen before and i feel like okay 
where is this going? How is this going to connect to other stuff that we actually do care about? Uh, can we get there, please? Yeah, fair enough. The Some of the relationship beats, like you said, like, I I kind of need the the mom to to get a little bit more uh, sympathy from her family. Because if if that were me having that conversation with my husband and he's just like, I believe the robot and not you. I mean. Yeah. At that, like, how do you still have a marriage if that's the state of, of your relationship? Um, so, yeah, I remember, I really, because, and again, maybe it's because I really enjoyed that performer. Um, liked her so much on The Honorable Woman um, in a role that was harder to, to like, I think. And also, of course, she's great on the IT crowd or the crowd. Um, so it could just be that. But I just, I really... I feel like we can need to, we can fast forward there. I, like I also feel like we can fast forward with William Hurt and his uh, his son, basically. Not son. son not son. Not son. son. Yeah. Um, yeah. So and I, I I continue to also find the the main villain guy super villainy. Yeah. In a really boring way. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward. But I I continue to be very uh, very much compelled with uh, Anita and I, it's Mia, right? Is the other? Yes. Yeah. Um. And so I'm hoping that that will start you know with and and i like that the eldest the eldest daughter is um you know a little bit more curious and more involved and when we have her reaching through to mia that was very you know like the little jump scare they throw in there was very effective for me so I'm, i'm hoping that we get more of that just right away in this next episode yeah, the eldest daughter is one of those characters where if you sit to think about her, you realize it's contrived as hell. Oh, yeah. That they have, like, super hacker daughter who's, like, on the case. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. we it's If it's going to get things moving, I'm totally fine with it. Yeah. Well, speaking of getting things moving, Unreal, uh, the episodes fly. This is the episode from last week because we are recording when the episode uh, from this week would be airing. Um, the They got things moving in a big way. Is uh is Mary dead? No. Okay. I I'm hope gonna not. say no. I just I don't see how you can believably have someone die and keep a production going. Yeah. I unless suppose. they keep it under wraps, in which case, okay, you get the season done, but then there's no next season and then there's no show. Okay. Unless you I don't know, get some other way around it. And I just don't I don't see as much as they have already strained credibility in many respects, that seems like a bridge too far. Okay, I really hope so. I feel so. like if she's dead, also they say she's dead by the end of the episode. Oh, well, but it doesn't just end with her down there? It ends with her down there and someone checking her out and nobody talking. Okay. Well, so. I, 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 how are you fully on board at this point with Unreal? <sighs> yes. <laughs> Why the sigh? Because I don't like to be wrong about stuff. I've, I've, feels bad. I have been spectacularly wrong about things before. Yeah, it doesn't make doesn't mean I should feel good about being wrong <laughs> about stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm definitely digging it. It's uh, as we've sort of gotten into before. The more it leans into being a drama, uh, I think the more it works, because it feels like it it takes its characters and the stakes and what's going on seriously, even if it doesn't take reality television seriously. That's a that's a balance it. I, I feel like it can navigate and I think is doing a pretty good job of it. How do you think they're doing with the other producer? Cause I feel like that's the, that's the one character that seems the least um, elegantly handled. Uh, I would agree with that. And 
yeah, she she definitely she's the one that screams plot device. Like she is neglected and therefore handles things in a dumb way all the time because she uh, isn't Sherry Appleby and no one can be Sherry Appleby. Right, exactly, because Sherry Appleby is the best at her job and only Sherry Appleby can be Sherry Appleby. Um yeah, no, I would agree with that and I I I would hope that they dimensionalized her at some point soon, which which I think that they've done a pretty good job with on just about everyone else. Um maybe not some of the girls uh who are actually on the show. But uh yeah, I I 100% concur with that. Now, do you have any investment in the various shipping elements of no. this show? No. No, I have no zero zip involvement in 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 that. Okay, I just figured I'd see if you you know had any thoughts other than um, blonde girl needs to just dump cameraman. That that's how my oh, relationship yes. with them is the worst. Yeah, that just needs to happen. Um, but no, I I'm I'm enjoying. Uh, I enjoyed this episode. I mean, it was appropriately dark. I really like the the sister. Um, just saying, no, this is not, this isn't right. And, um, yeah, I thought that the, they handled the, the instability of the, uh, the highs and the lows really well. And the train transitioned into her just like talking crazy with, um, we're going to go to London and he's going to solve all, like, I thought they handled that in a, in a, in a pretty mm-hmm. seamless way. And I forget whether it was this episode or the previous, because I did catch up this week, that featured uh, Shuri Appleby masturbating while watching home movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, that was that was nicely played. Yeah, that was that was previous, but yeah, that yes, that was a memorable moment. Any other thoughts on Unreal? Uh, no, other than that, I'm I'm glad it's shaping up. I'm glad it's 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 been renewed, and uh, I'm I'm glad it 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 has found an appropriate wavelength that is uh, black, but not. Uh, not Spinal Tap Black. Has it affected your viewing and relationship with reality TV yet? Uh, no, because I don't actually watch any. That really. helps, and certainly okay. not certainly not of the kind that that they're that they're uh, lampooning on this no show. No reality competition shows. No. Okay, fair enough. Well, let's move on to our last show of the week, and that's Halt and Catch Fire, working for the Clampdown. We didn't talk about uh, the episode last week because uh, because of time. Um, but we did. We're fans of that one. What did you think of how things shook out this week? Before we get to this episode, can I just clarify that I'm an idiot and I didn't realize until like the seventh time watching the intro that it's conception. What do you think about it? The the design of the the light hitting the hitting the thing, and then the thing grows. It's it's conception. Okay. You're watching you're watching like sperm hit egg and then creates a thing. That's what the, except it's in tech form. And I didn't realize it until anyway, doesn't matter. None of this is important. <laughs> Let's get on the you next time you watch it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay. Anyway, um <laughs> and then you'll realize what I mean, I hope. And I'm not insane. Um I really like this episode um the I, I'm of two minds about the Gordon thing. On one hand, um, secrets really bug me, mm-hmm. as you know, and they've leaned heavily on secrets with that character, and it is tiresome. On the other hand, the way they've depicted him him not having all of his mental faculties has been really scary and really effective to me. Yeah, because it's it's so it's such a small nugget here and there, you know. Uh, interspersed without any shift in the performing uh, th- in the performance or the delivery from the actor, um, yeah, 
it's been very effective. I absolutely agree. Uh, and I like that they have Donna's mom, who's just such a bitch, mm-hmm. um, not be wrong about everything she's saying. She's wrong about a lot of it, but she's not mm-hmm. wrong about everything. And having that reality check come from that source w- prompts us to not want to believe it or not trust that source because if she's saying it then screw her she's terrible um and so, so like the way that they're handling all of that i think is really good um ha- not having seen any of season one i think they have nailed why joe is the worst and why would you ever want to work with him because clearly you can't trust this guy at all when he's just like has left them hanging so many times believing that their company is destroyed. And then he just goes to the next room and he's just like, Hey, it's going to be awesome. Cause we can get all this money from him. <laughs> he's like a psychopath. It's, you know, I, which I know is not actually a technical term, but you, you know what I mean? Listeners. I, I think Lee Pace is doing a really nice job of, um, I believe him in each, in, in each given scene. It's just when mm-hmm. you when you stitch together those scenes, you realize something is wrong with him. If you watch him in one scene, you think, okay, he's like this. If you watch him in the scene near the end with Cameron where he says, don't sell, mm-hmm. and then talks about his childhood, that's a different guy that is equally plausible. It's when you stitch those people together that you realize this there's something really wrong with this guy. Um, also, I have to say, as much as I'm not a fan of TV love triangles ever, um, I do think this episode does a good job of... Uh, eliciting that connection that exists between them, mm-hmm. and I think for you know for Lee Pace and Carrie Bichet, they they have, uh, I mean the the chemistry exists, and as much as you uh, distrust and perhaps even dislike um, Joe in that moment, you can feel that history come up, and it's it's such a played out character beat or like relationship beat, but it totally works. I think based on on their performances, and I I. I could see that going really annoying ways, but I think in the context of this episode, it works. Yeah. I really like what they give the, the boyfriend character this week and how they've the been boyfriend. Hand- yeah. No, this, I, I know. Comic-Con. I'm pleading Comic-Con, <laughs> even though that is not why. No, that's um, okay. He's the boyfriend to me too. I, I'm not, I'm not arguing. Yeah. yeah. Um, because they, they have him support Cameron, but also, give her again a reality check that she needs of you're not paying us and i've got this background where i spent a lot of nights hungry growing up and my i my mom doesn't have a job and i don't have a job really i'm pushing trolleys at a supermarket all night Mm -hmm. so that i can continue to follow this pipe dream um and like to really emphasize emphasize to her that she has a responsibility to these people. I also like that this episode finally does away with this whole, we all run the company. Cause that's just <laughs> yeah. guys, guys. Um, and I also like that they put a little bit of an edge to their super magical, happy, fun land of community where everybody's nice all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, start to show the negative, uh, aspects of that and the dangers that come with that so um yeah i think they're just doing excellent work over at all the catch fire and i continue to be engaged with the, with the show and with the characters i'm so happy with what they've done with bosworth and like i i, I have a lot of affinity for that character and um mm-hmm. as long as he I, I don't think from what they've shown us this season i don't think he would sell out uh cameron 
Um, and I, I really appreciate the, the performance from the actor as he is being glad handed by the, uh, by, by James Cromwell. Um, mm-hmm. And he can't help but be affected by that. But he also knows exactly what's happening and he doesn't want to be, but he is. He's like, so mm-hmm. I, I thought they did a really good job of showing all those conflicts. Yeah, and I have to say, we haven't really mentioned James Cromwell yet, but he has one of my favorite moments of the show that I've seen so far this week, where he and Joe have that heart-to-heart, mm-hmm. and uh, and he has that moment of, oh, you promised them that. Good. I'm glad <laughs> you promised them that. Because I feel like I haven't gotten to see James Cromwell play, play a nasty bastard before, and that's just a great note for he's really good at it he's very good yes absolutely um well what wins your week in genre and drama simon uh <laughs> well the hannibal award goes to hannibal but uh honorable mention to halt and catch fire i think it's doing some really good stuff yeah and i'll co-sign that um with an uh, unreal 2 is also pretty yes. pretty fabulous and it's also one of the most enjoyable shows that's like what the first one i go to on the dvr you know if mm-hmm. i was if i sat down i'd be hannibal first <laughs> and then unreal and hold and catch fire um, and honorable honorable mention to mr robot for existing on usa because that's still pretty cool to me pretty much well before we lose all meaning in our picks of the week let's go to our show notes a few uh a few notes here you can find a post up for this episode at soundonsite.org where you can leave us a comment and let us know what you thought of the week's tv you can like us on facebook to follow the going out goings on at soundonsite tv um and start up a conversation there you can email us the televerse at gmail.com and uh you can also find us in itunes yay where we have an m4a chaptered feed and mp3 unchaptered feed that are once again searchable and discoverable in the itunes store and can be reviewed in reviews that we'll get that will and receive and like exist again that would be nice uh, <laughs> and then of course we're both on twitter i'm at the televerse and simon you are at sucker howl and what is our question of the week uh in honor of mr robot and its bizarre status on usa and seriously if you haven't seen it or don't know what the discrepancy is you should watch it just to see what what i'm talking about uh what network do you feel like most needs an off format series right now hmm that's cable or otherwise anything. Well, Lifetime has Unreal. Yes, that's true. USA has Mr. Robot. Um, huh. I feel like AMC needs a needs a good comedy. AMC could well, but Better Call Saul is you know pretty funny. Is not a comedy. It's not a comedy. It's, it's not a comedy, but it needs a a really good half hour comedy. It needs to break into that somehow cuz yeah. Okay. Um how about <laughs> NBC needs to have Hannibal. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Because that is, you know. Um yeah, cuz the, the the now like the networks I think of like so for either I like their brand Already, so FX, you know, I don't want to, wouldn't want to change their brand other than to have Tyrant not be on there, on there anymore. Um, although I haven't seen any of the season, maybe it's become amazing. I don't know. <laughs> Ca- caveat, not. caveat, caveat. Um, or, um, I don't watch the show, the network, so I'm not aware of it. So that's that's actually a tricky one for me. I'm gonna, you know, take the cop out answer and go with <laughs> NBC and Hannibal. Because um, after Hannibal goes off the air, there's nothing on NBC that I've seen that is challenging in any way. Um, 
So that's what I'm going to go with. But it's it's a sort of cheating kind of answer. So I look forward to what our listeners are going to say. All right. Okay. Uh, well, now, well, now we're going to take a break, and I'm going to come back with Winnie McIntosh of Sound on Sight to talk about Comic Con 2015, uh, the TV programming and the experiences that we had, and and what our what our takeaways from the the convention are. So we'll be right right back after this. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year We're back with the Televerse. This is Kate Kolzik and joining me to help look at Comic-Con 2015 and specifically, you know, we were more, much more centered around the TV experience and like the different kinds of panels that was going that were going on um, is Whitney McIntosh from Sound on Sight. Whitney, uh, welcome back to the podcast and thank you for helping to cover Comic-Con for us this year. Hi, Kate. Yeah, happy to be back and definitely happy to go experience my first Comic-Con and, and covering it as press. Definitely a, an interesting trip for sure. Now, was this your first comic convention anywhere or just your first San Diego Comic-Con? My first Comic-Con convention anywhere. So this is this is a big first step <laughs> to the deep end and just hoping it goes okay. Yeah, I had that experience uh, when I first went. Uh, the only con- convention I've ever been to uh, is, is San Diego Comic-Con. I've been to Ebert Fest. I've been to the Austin Television Festival. But as for like a convention, this is the only one. And it's like you say, the, your first year, it can be pretty it can be pretty overwhelming. Now, you, along with many other things, one of the big things that you did was that you camped out. And I've never done that. And how was that coming in like your first day or the first full day to, to dive right in with the, the camping experience? It was definitely interesting. I was lucky because we had a group of about seven or eight camping out together so I had friends holding the line for about the first hour hour and a half before I got there because I was commuting from North County so that definitely helped especially because they knew what they were doing and I did not uh but that was that was rough that was me getting up and trying to pack a bag for basically the first two full days of comic-con uh or the first day and a half one full day one camp day uh in a backpack and hope it went well. <laughs> and then, ended up with, you know, like walking around like a pack mule, all the stuff from the convention floor, um, camping stuff, a sleeping bag, everything. So it was, it was definitely a, uh, a complicated entry into it instead of just kind of leisurely walking around preview night. That's for sure. What was the uh, line experience like? Did you get a lot of sleep or hard? I would imagine probably not. <laughs> uh, yeah, we, I probably went to bed around, 1 30 and woke up around 5 30 so not great sleep uh but we were lucky enough to have sleeping bags from a friend who works at a navy supply store so got cheap sleeping bags that were really comfortable passed them on to the star wars line the next day kind of paying it forward um and yeah we i mean we had a great time and very different from what we heard from later nights we got there early we were within the first the first shoot. So we were in the sixth row the next day at Hall H. Um, we made friends with people in line. We ordered some pizza, grabbed some wine, you know, had a good night and then took shifts going home to shower or go see the preview nights or uh, kind of just even just walk around, take a break and then and then kind of slept in shifts as well just to make sure 
we wouldn't miss anybody that came through the line, which Peter Capaldi ended up doing, which was wonderful. Uh, so that was a nice treat around 1130, 12, for sure. Uh, broke it up a little bit. And since we were watching Doctor Who in line, that was also appropriate. Uh, but yeah, so minimal sleep, woke up, stood in line for, you know, two, three hours in the morning, kind of just hang- hanging out, which was probably the longest part because you're not really in your sleeping bags anymore. You've run out of battery for computers or whatever, and, and you want to save your phone for the rest of the day. And then you, you know, you're like, what, what do we do now? <laughs> we wait in the whole H line. So that was, <laughs> yeah. But the camping experience, great. We had no issues in line, people cutting, people being rude. Uh, it, it was really wonderful. Um, and, and I think we lucked out compared to later nights for sure. Yeah, I was hearing, I went to the talk back this year at the end of Sunday for the first time. I hadn't been previously and um, I heard that things got to be quite a mess, especially for the uh, the ADA line for the, the disabled and the assistance uh, for the dis- uh, disabled um where apparently they were handing out with the wristbands, they handed out all of 65 wristbands for, for the ADA line, um, which is 1% of the room, which is not even remotely uh, comparable to the percentage of the population who would qualify. So uh, for that line. So yeah. Did, how did the wristbands go smoothly? Like what exactly was that procedure? So for us, they came around at approximately 8.30, I want to say. Let us know, you know, we were about to order a pizza, about to go for walks, get, you know, get the aforementioned wine. Uh, They came around, they let us know, everyone make sure you're in your spot in line at 10 p.m. That's when wristbands will start. And especially because we were close to the front, you know, you make sure we were there. Can't hold spaces where they were very clear about that, which we definitely appreciated. Uh, wristband went smoothly as far as we can tell for the whole line. We didn't really, we were on the hashtag all night, didn't really see of any issues there. And then the, the rest of the night, basically you can leave. If you didn't have friends in line, you could leave and come back to the wristband line in the morning, which guaranteed you entry, but did not guarantee you good entry. So if you were in the front of the line, you're basically back in the back of the line with the wristband line, uh, but you could get in. And then if you did have friends, you could go home, kind of what we did. People showered, people changed, people dropped off a bunch of their stuff, came back around 6, 6.30 in time for the 7.30 a.m. You know, line consolidation, line movement. And then I believe around 9.15, they finally opened up the doors and let us in. And it was it went smoothly there, you know, we had a little bit of a run to the seats because we did want good ones for, for that day of programming. But yeah, for us, it went super smoothly. I thought the security guards did a wonderful job just being incredibly clear with how the procedure was going to go and making sure that people understood, you know, when we're getting up to consolidate the line, when you, you need to be in line, what what the procedure is if you leave line, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I was very pleased with how they handled that for sure. Glad to hear it. Now, uh, did you uh, hear any of these other, because I heard the line situation was not necessarily that positive the next couple of days. Did you hear anything about that? Or because I I was completely out of the Hall H sphere this this year. Yeah, definitely. We heard there were people during the Thursday night line preparing for Star Wars that held, somebody held 150 spots and security did nothing about it. That's insane. Uh, yeah, near the front of the line, um, and they, I guess they were trying to push the system, and they succeeded. Uh, we heard that the wristbands were going so slowly that it was an hour before people got there, and that 
you know, Liam Cunningham had come through the line from Game of Thrones and people couldn't go see him because the wristbands weren't on their wrists yet. Uh, went, you know, much slower. The thing that you talked about with the ADA line. Uh, yeah, I, th- I feel like the system really broke down on Thursday and I'm not really sure why or how. If it was just too many people coming at once or if it was the 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 day before line starting on Wednesday for the Friday uh, camp out or the Thursday night camp out. I don't know if that complicated things, but yeah, we heard a lot again, just being on the hashtag, being on the convention floor, heard a lot of rough stuff that people were going through and, and asking security to fix. And they basically weren't. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, that's why we consider ourselves lucky. Cause we really did, you know, no one cut, no one tried to save spots for double digits or triple digits or anything like that. Well, and I think that's a big, uh, contrast between the different days of programming on Thursday, you know, the fewer people attend on, on preview night and, and on Thursday, even with Dr. Who being huge and there being so much great programming scheduled for Thursday and Hall H that just doesn't compare with the demand for star Wars and with the demand for Batman versus Superman. So I would imagine, um, it was some of the friendlier atmosphere in line could have also been, due to that and and even just the the line staff the very well-intentioned line staff having so much more energy the first day of the con versus as it continues um i that's a job i would not want yeah we did appreciate when you enter hall h every time that they cheer you on and they give you high fives and it's like you just finished a marathon which i guess in a way you did um even on the saturday line when we were waiting they did that when we came in and they were so enthusiastic and so supportive of basically you crazy people that just waited and, you know, either camped out or waited in hours of lines to get into uh, these panels. Uh, but I, I do agree the amount of people that were there definitely had an effect because on ha- the Thursday of Hall H, it was, so it was uh, Bill Murray and Mitch Blazer for Rock the Casbah, then Hunger Games, then Doctor Who, then uh, Con Man. And people were strolling in for Doctor Who, uh, the amount of turnover and the amount of people that weren't in line for that uh, kind of just were able to walk right in. I spoke to a couple of friends that were also there as press trying to cover and they were about to go, you know, try to screen it somewhere or something. And everyone was like, no, you can just walk right in. So definitely think that played a part. You know, if Doctor Who was on Saturday, that would have been impossible. Uh, so I, I do think that helped, but it was a full room, but the turnover was probably close to 60% at least. Yeah. Well, and that always, you know, that's, that's part of the crapshoot of Comic-Con. You never know because some of the lines that you would think would be very manageable can <laughs> end up very much the opposite. And some of the things that you assume you're not going to be able to get into, like I had a couple of friends who were, uh, who, who just assumed they wouldn't be able to get into Hannibal, um, at the, uh, at the end of Saturday, um, and were able to just walk in. Um, again, that was another very full room, but another room that had a lot of turnover between the various panels. And so you can't always predict what what the big con shows are going to be. There's some that every year we know, like I don't know how Orphan Black isn't in Ballroom 20 yet, but there are others that uh, have surprisingly fervent fan bases or where there's less crossover and so there's less camping in the room than you might expect. Yeah, absolutely. And you didn't do too much Hall H, right? I did no Hall H this year. And I tried to get into Hall H on Saturday evening for part of the, for the very, like the tail end of the DC um, or Warner Brothers TV thing, uh, just because I was there with my sister and she has never done Hall H. She's never been in Hall H. And we knew that we weren't going to deal with those insane lines. So while we were walking back from the San Diego Symphony, 
uh, we were like, oh, there's still another like half hour of the DC thing. Why don't we just like sneak in and watch the second half of the whatever they're screening at the end, so that way you can see what it's like, get a bit of that Hall H experience without having to be in line for hours and hours. And they just wouldn't let us in. Um, they apparently closed th that last panel went from eight until eleven, and the line staff that we talked to when we asked if we could go in because a lot of people were leaving, so it was clear there was no issue about space. Um, and they said that they had closed the doors and not let anybody else in starting at 9 p.m. And that just was very, very frustrating to me because if they had said, if they had told us that, that would, ahead of time, that's one thing. But I don't understand how you have a panel that goes from 8 until 11 and you stop letting people in at 9. Like, if if you are only interested in the last of the four or five shows that they were going to preview that night, then if you didn't know ahead of time, you didn't get to see it. And those last two shows are arguably the ones many people might have wanted to see actually previewed. Um, the first three were The Flash, Arrow, and Legends of Tomorrow. Not in that order. Arrow, Flash, Legends of Tomorrow. Um, the last two were Gotham and Supergirl. So if you don't care about the CW, which most people do and, and should, those shows are great. But if you don't care about the CW and you want you watch network shows and you want to see what Supergirl looks like and see the screening, you were one of those people that was aiming for 10 o'clock. Maybe you went for dinner. Maybe you finished up another panel. And as someone who was in it, we, that was the line we waited for on Saturday. We were in it. There was so much space. And they did not make it clear, even when you were entering the first time, that those doors would be closed. Yeah. Um, so th that's definitely an oversight. Yeah. But I was glad to not have... Uh dealt with Hall H this year. There wasn't enough in there that I, yeah, there, there were individual panels I would have loved to have seen. Um, I, I have a bit of issues. I have some issues. I have some Moffity issues that listeners to the Televerse are well aware of. Um, so I wasn't interested in Doctor Who, but I would have liked to have seen the Con Man panel. I would have loved to see the Women Who Kick Ass Entertainment Weekly panel. I always want to see that, and I never will be able to because of when they put it in Hall H. Um, so, and there's a couple other ones that would have been fun, but for me, nothing was worth going to be worth the lines. And so I was actually very okay skipping that. Uh, what were your... Uh, like what were your highlight experiences either in Hall H or the rest of the convention? Definitely. I mean, definitely Peter Capaldi walking through the line uh, or walking by the line. And he later said on Conan that people told him not to and not to leave his hotel because he would be mobbed. He was like, as soon as I heard I'd be mobbed, of course I went. Uh, <laughs> wonderful. Uh, and as soon as I saw the back of his head and saw whose hair it was, and I had done like a full, hundred yard sprint I want to say or like 50 yard sprint in bare feet and like short shorts to see what was happening because people had their phones up and I I usually am pretty chill with these things I usually don't get super excited I give people their space um, for example I saw Amy Acker was sitting next to me in the airport on my flight home I was I controlled myself uh, <laughs> when Peter Capaldi walked by I had no chill I had absolutely no chill I like lost my breath as soon as I saw the gray hair uh I got some nice pictures. It was awesome. Um, besides that, I mean, that, that that day was really fun. Bill Murray showing up randomly in character was pretty great because that's not something, I mean, for good and for bad, that's not really Comic-Con, but it's the type of thing that can happen at Comic-Con. So that was awesome. Um, and then just some of the smaller moments, some of the cute, cute not smaller panels. They were in Ballroom 20 or, or 6, uh, the larger six ballrooms, but six, a six BCF. Yeah. Yeah. I, those letters. Um, the, 
the smaller moments, like the Outlander cast just pulling a bottle of whiskey out to play a drinking game, or the Orphan Black cast, uh, Jordan Gavaris stopping short in the middle of an answer to say how cute a puppy was in the room, uh, and then immediately collecting his train of thought and moving forward as if nothing had happened was pretty great. And, and just those little things that, you know, you can watch them online, but those are the things that are great when you see them in the room and you would experience them with a ton of people. You know, the lights came up on the Orphan Black panel and they were like, we had no idea there were so many of you in there. Um, and, and that was really fun to watch and, and just experience it with a room full of people that love that show as much as you do and, and be really indulged in the fandom. Uh, Exhibit A, the Hannibal Panable with the uh, blood-covered fanables with really good audience questions, but not one person that asked a question was not covered in blood or a flower crown, which was just amazing. Um, and, and I know you were in that panel. Did you appreciate the same things, or what were your kind of moments that you took away? Well, yeah, the panel was really fun last year, and it was very fun this year. It was um, – uh, there are certain people at Comic-Con who just always give good panel. And uh, you saw at least one of them because Nathan Fillion is always amazing on panels at Comic-Con. doesn't matter what it is. He gets the vibe of Comic-Con and knows how to work the room and knows how to how to be entertaining but not um, – but constructively so on a panel. And uh, and Brian Fuller is another one of those who absolutely gets gets Comic-Con. Um, I would say a couple panels earlier for Grimm – a person, uh, one of the listeners or fans of the show, uh, listeners walked walked up to a, ask a question and asked a super nitpicky question. Um, it really was not the time or place, uh, but they did. And uh, Silas Weir Mitchell, instead of dismissing the person the way that the other people on the panel basically did, um, answered with a very specific canon-based response and said, "That's a good question." And here's why I I think it's it's not actually a a flaw in the in the the show's logic, and so that kind of respect for the audience for the type of audience you're gonna find at Comic Con was really wonderful to see, and again spoke to an awareness of the fan base and of the kind of people who are gonna fly halfway across the country to hang out with fellow fans of things. Normally I, I don't see that kind of really specific nitpicking kind of questions in the fan Q and A's. Um, the, the, the audience questions at the panel were fantastic. And actually the other panel that had really great audience questions was the, uh, uh, composing for superhero movies panel that I went to, which had ac actually very, very thoughtful questions as well. But a lot of the times it, it's more kind of, it's, it's more fanny kind of ones, but to have that kind of response um, from, from an, a panelist is something that I always really appreciate. It gives me a, a particular respect for them um, and for their, for, for their awareness of the fan base. But as for the, the panel, yeah, just uh, watching the trailer was, was fun, but it, it's more about being surrounded by a group of people who have the same appreciation that you do for a particular fandom or a creator or uh, even just an experience. And um, I mean, cause we, we love the show Hannibal um, and like no one is watching it. <laughs> so on your in your daily life, when you walk around in person, you're lucky if you meet somebody who's heard of it and seen it, let alone, um, actually is up to date and you can have a conversation with them about it. Or you can say, Hey, it's a show about Hannibal Lecter that I actually really respect on a, uh, thematic and storytelling and visual and creative 
you know, base basis without them just assuming that you know you like horror movies or it's a show about a creepy serial killer or like that you like Outlander. So, Oh, you must just like romance novels and, uh, and cheesecake. And, and that's the only reason you watch the show, which that's there. That fan base is certainly there, but like this, you can take your fandom seriously. So being surrounded by people where you can just say, uh, you can just say a certain word and, and the whole audience is going to respond. They'll all have that shared moment of recognition together. It's really special. And, and that's something that it's as great as it is for them to put the panels up online and for other people to experience that who can't be in the room. There's an added experience that you get from being in the room that you just really can't capture any other way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I do just want to shout out Brian Fuller one more time because in multiple moments on that panel, he really stepped up and prove not only that he cares about the audience, but that he's willing to prove it in a limited, in the limited time that they had on this panel when they could very well be trying to, you know, give good sound bites or anything like that. You know, they were having fun with it. Richard Armitage um, came out with a stuffed red dragon, uh, stuffed animal, which was mm -hmm. hilarious and adorable. Uh, and then even, you know, Brian Fuller respects the audience more and those fans in the room more than even some of the Comic-Con employees did. Uh, and, and part of that, I get that it's their job, but part of it is, you know, let people have a little fun. For example, he kind of waved away security when people offered up flower crowns to himself and the rest of the panel. And then when Richard asked, why are we wearing flower crowns? I, I don't know why I'm putting this on my head. Brian Fuller answered in the most intelligent and, and heartfelt way that, you know, why, where the flower, flower crowns came from and what they represent by the audience and by the fans. And that was beautiful. Um, and then just one other moment was when a girl who had asked a very intelligent question uh, then offered him a scarf that she had hand knit that matched his favorite uh, suit that Hannibal wears on the show. And security kind of immediately tried to shut her microphone off and, and, you know, sit her down. And he again, sort of waved them away and was like, Oh my gosh, it's wonderful. Toss it to me. Um, you know, just wanted to be a part of it and understood that, that people who care aren't necessarily trying to ruin the panel by asking, you know, personal requests or giving gifts. It's just, it's part of that environment. And, you know, by him having a Star Wars blazer on a flower crown and a hand knit scarf by a fan by the end of the panel was <laughs> hilarious and wonderful and everything that is good about, you know, him as a showrunner and him as a person and that, that whole joy of the panel of them laughing and talking about a show that is the exact opposite of those feelings was just truly great. Well, yeah. And again, Comic-Con is not for everyone. And it's that's it's not for every creator. It's not for every actor. It's not for every show that has a fan base who would like to see it there, because not every creator or writer or actor or director is comfortable with that. But it makes you really appreciate those who are those who do truly get it. So, yeah, like I said, Brian Fuller gets it. Joss Whedon gets it. There's a lot of uh, these certain uh, nerd icons. Like, go to any panel that Chris Hardwick moderates, and yes, his endless optimism can, and and he <laughs> seems to like everything ever. That can get frustrating after a while, because it's the same shtick. But there's, but he understands the Comic-Con audience, and he understands the vibe in the room, and everybody is there to have a good time and to share their love for something that they don't get to usually express in another way. So it really makes you appreciate the people who are able to, who feel comfortable with that and who are at ease with that and sharing that with the, with the fans. Um, so yeah, I, the panel was, was, was a lot of fun. And there was, there was some mourning there in the room because we don't know that it's, that'll be picked up and it's looking less and less likely as time continues. 
But um, but they managed to keep like to acknowledge that while also keeping it a very positive and um, rewarding experience, which I thought was great. Uh, did you have any other panels that really stood out? I mean, the Hunger Games panel was just filled with charisma, as you would expect from Jennifer Lawrence and uh, Liam Hemsworth sitting next to each other. Was and, and Josh Hutcherson. They were hilarious and adorable, and had lots of fun quips uh, and were answering questions that were hard to answer because people are asking, how did you adapt this part of the book? And, and you know, you can't answer that on the panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they did a great job with what they could. And it was pretty much what we expected from them, but it was really good. Yeah, I think that was it for, like, the really high points. Um, definitely some low points, but we can we can get to that. Um, I know you went to wait in line or to wait in a room for the production and composing panels and kind of caught yourself in a... An interesting panel with uh, uh, Mr. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. I went to the um, the. I was waiting for the costume guild and customers guild and the uh, art uh, designing guild presentations or production designing presentations, uh, which were back to back in the same room. And my sister had a different panel she wanted to check out beforehand, so I was like, eh, "Sure, I'll hang out in the room." And it just it happened to be a panel for a comic book series called March co-written by Congressman John Lewis, who's one of the, the big six, uh, the last uh, remaining of the big six um, members of the, of the civil rights movement. Um, so it's about the freedom March from Selma to Montgomery that he was, he was part of. And um, so, so the Congressman spoke and the other uh, contributors to the comic book series, the, the third one will be coming out um, this year. Um, spoke as well and it was it was very um it was very moving he congressman lewis uh was cosplaying as himself from the march so he wore a replica of the the trench coat he wore that day as well as a replica of the backpack that he carried and he was carrying like the same stuff that he had had on the day so like to see somebody like that embrace this element of comic-con it was really neat and it felt genuine too it didn't like sometimes you feel like you're being co-opted um and it's sort of exploited for your for your fandom but th- that wasn't the case here um it was really it was a really great thing to just sort of stumble into and that's part of uh what makes comic-con so great and, and that's one of the reasons that i i like doing the smaller rooms when you're in hall h when you're in ballroom 20 you know ahead of time what all the panels are going to be and you're not going to be surprised I mean, maybe there'll be a movie you don't know too much about. Like, you're surprised when Bill Murray shows up because no one expects Bill Murray to show up. But um, but you're not going to necessarily discover something that you didn't know about in the same way. So that was a really cool discovery for me. Um, I also, t- getting to another room early, sat through a Power Rangers panel that I never would have attended Ever. And uh, guys, Power Rangers has gotten a lot cooler than it was when I when I saw it when I was a kid. Um, it still is very much Power Rangers. But um, but again, to be surrounded by that fan base, e- even just as an observer, you could really appreciate what they got out of it. And uh, to see some like, you know, trailers they, that that room had a really good moderator, too, which always helps. But um, to, to see what the show is up to now, you know, 20 years later uh, is really neat. And um, yeah, that, that's what I never would have discovered. I also uh, went to a panel for a book called God is Disappointed in You, which was hilarious and amazing. Um, and that is a book that is basically the Bible. If you explained it to someone at a bar, 
is the perspective on that. So um, instead of the Bible, it's basically the gist, uh, God's disappointed in you. You can do better. Um, and it was just fabulous. So that <laughs> my sister ordered that from Amazon while we were in the panel. Uh, um, and it's at home and I've already started reading it and it's wonderful. Uh, so, but the, the, I really enjoyed that element of, of the con as well, the getting to discover new things and then to keep monologuing just a little bit longer with that comes, um, this year I was able, because I did very few press specific things this year. It was very much, um, the fan experience and I'm curious how your press experiences went. Um, but one of the things I wasn't able to do last year because I had a press roundtable was to go see the San Diego Symphony perform the score to the new Star Trek uh, film, uh, first Star Trek. Uh, and this year, because I wasn't doing roundtables, I was able to. So I went and saw Star Trek Into Darkness with the score performed live by the San Diego Symphony and the San Diego Symphony Choir. And it was amazing. It was super cool. I highly, highly highly recommend it. I assume they're going to do this again next year. It was a big seller. Um, it's just, it's just amazing to see a, a score a, when it's a good score performed live like that because so frequently the dial is turned so far down um, so that the, the score doesn't overwhelm the sound effects and the dialogue that you just never get to hear what all the, the nuance of what is going on. And so to have it performed live, to get the energy of the vocals, to get the energy that comes with a live performance married to, uh, uh, you know, even I'm not a huge fan of that movie, but I, I like it. I enjoy the, 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 the world and everything. And I like those actors, but pairing those, it was just a much more visceral experience. It was really great. And yeah, like I said, I highly recommend anyone interested um, in film scores or in um, live live performance should should go to that next year. It was uh, Michael Giacchino was there. He, he wrote the score, composed the score, and it was directed, uh, I want to say, by uh, Thomas Newman. No, I had that wrong. It was directed by another fabulous film composer who was there, whose name escapes me at the moment, and I feel horrible about that. Um, but yeah, that's the kind of thing that is you don't have to have a badge to, to do that. If you're in the area, if you live in San Diego, you can go check it out, like fight through the crowds because I would say it is worth it. Um, did you have any other experiences like that, that were like not necessarily in the convention center or to kind of counter, did you have any press experiences that were, you know, that, that were a new sort of thing for you? Um, I wouldn't say a new sort of thing as far as the press experiences go. They were definitely positive. Um, I didn't, I mean, there were a lot of people at my circle or my round table that weren't asking quite as many intelligent questions or not even well fact checked questions. Um, yeah, that's a threat. That's, that's kind of why I stopped doing them. Yeah. Um, and it's definitely different. You know, a lot of my press friends have been in New York, which is, it's just a different group of people. It's just a different uh, type of environment. And, you know, Comic-Con's going to bring out people that, don't necessarily have time to fact check their questions or uh, watch the show. And that's okay, but it, it does detract from the way you're asking your questions. So that was fine, but the talent was um, was wonderful. I spoke with the cast and um, one of the directors of Another Period, the new Comedy Central half-hour show. Uh, and they were, you know, hilarious, and they answered things intelligently, and that was great. Um, as far as things away from the convention center, I didn't really get the chance to explore too much. I didn't want to spend my time waiting in lines uh, 
you know, to take a picture with something or to experience the realm at Game of Thrones just because I did want to experience so much of what was on the convention floor. Uh, but it was definitely interesting. I think I really enjoyed just the two hours on Saturday I took to wander around uh, the exhibit hall and look at artists and, you know, buy some some prints and some art and and look at a lot of unique things that people bring with them. That was really nice. Um, and I, I kind of was happy I let myself have that time when I was also fretting that I was missing these small panels, you know, that you kind of went to and things like that. Um, but it was nice to just explore and just kind of relax and, and see what people had to offer and talk to other fans. Yeah, I, I just can't do the floor. I, I did a couple times. Um, and I, cause I, I cosplayed this year and we can talk about that a little bit. It was, a, it was a hugely eye-opening experience. It's a totally different con experience to cosplay than it is to just attend. Um, I was not prepared for just how different it was. But uh, one of the days I was wearing my TARDIS dress, so I fought through the floor because I heard that there was a TARDIS so that I could get my picture as the TARDIS in the TARDIS. And I, that was worth it. But I, I just, after a while, I, I don't I don't, have, I don't get claustrophobic or um, whatever the crowd-phobic is. But um, it's just a bit too much for me. I, I always end up stuck behind a stroller or there's a group of people like just talking in the middle of a T intersection that you just want to smack them upside the head and say, did your, did your parents never teach you manners? Um, and I just, I, I, I really, really dislike walking through an area and not being able to stop and turn left or turn right. If I need to like leave, if, you know, if the, the flow starts carrying you completely different direction than you want to go, I don't, I don't handle that well. Also, usually this year, it wasn't the case, but in the past I've had a giant backpack, which means you are constantly jostled and constantly causing problems for other people as well. So that makes it even less entertaining. Um, so yeah, I can't really do the floor. I, I try to go Wednesday night because there are fewer people and I can get pictures of everything. And that's, you know, that's really cool to, you know, see what the Lego guys have come up with and all of that. But this year it was crazier on Wednesday than it was on Friday because the, I think people were really excited about different exclusives. Uh, every, every time I was in the elevator at my hotel, there were exhibitors talking about how it was their best Comic-Con ever for, for sales. Um, so the floor was kind of crazy this year, at least for, for me, it was, how did you, how did you like the floor? Was it, was it overwhelming for you or was it a positive experience? It was at first before you kind of get your bearings a little bit, but I don't think there's a way to make it not overwhelming. You know, there's what 5,000, uh, booth numbers, uh, ranging all around the floor plus the exclusives, which we did stand in line for, for the, uh, Doctor Who Companions shirt, which you had to plan for early in the morning. And then, and then, but even wondering, I, you know, I found myself in the 700s, not really knowing how I got there. To be fair, that was the fourth day I was there. So a little bit delirious, but uh, <laughs> just kind of wandering around and, and looking at things. And there's not really a way to plan the floor because you don't, you know, there's not a book saying what, what stalls have wished. There's not uh, like the, the app doesn't really tell you what product they have which is the nice part but it's also a little bit of a detractor because you are just wandering hoping that you find something cool um if you don't know specifically who to look up or or if you have somewhere to go which is a little a little disorienting for sure when you're trying to get the coolest stuff or or so on yeah yeah being sent on a mission to uh, to acquire a certain certain things for some some friends um led to some frustration because I was like, I walked up and down the floor a couple times trying to find a particular 
booth, like a brand, a big name booth, and then eventually discovered that they were under a different name. Uh, you know, um, it, it, it was, it's a lot, but you're right. If So that's why I just avoid the floor usually because the floor and I are not a good match. You have to be able to just let go of that and just people watch and enjoy and like, just be zen about it. Um, so that's why I tend to avoid that <laughs> um, in general. One of the other best experiences for me that I should mention is that I got to meet some of our listeners uh, to the Televerse and to This Is Our Design, which was amazing. It's never happened uh, for me before. Um, I met one of our listeners over at uh, the Austin Television Festival, but we had like chatted beforehand on Twitter, so like I knew to look for them. Um, so it was very, it was very neat. And well, that's one of the best things about Comic Con is getting to, you know, like meet people in line, or you know, I met some really cool people in line as well, um, or or hang out with people that you only get to talk usually over Skype or on Twitter. Like I got to meet you, Whitney. And I can now put a, a moving memory of a face with your voice. It's great. Um, so I think that interpersonal part is one of the, for me, every time I go, that is more and more the most important part of the convention for me. Definitely. And I, I didn't go in wanting to meet people in person, uh, you know, besides yourself, obviously, since we had never met in person before this. Uh, but I didn't go in kind of searching out certain people that I had been communicating with, whether on Twitter or email or something that I really wanted to meet. But then it turned into just, um, you know, who we're grabbing dinner with, who we're camping out with, who we're in this panel with that, oh, you're that person on Twitter or, oh, you write for this blog and I write for this blog. And it, and it turned into a similar experience, even if I didn't go in with that specific intent. So that is another nice part of it as well, because there are so many people there. So most of the industry is there uh, that you can meet up with and and talk with, even if it's by accident. That was wonderful. Yeah. Um, well, we should talk briefly here about uh, maybe some of our, our negative experiences or things you, maybe you weren't expecting or or you were hoping wouldn't happen, but then, then did. Did you have any negative interactions or was it mostly a very positive experience? Um, yeah, we definitely had a couple of negative interactions. Um, one I didn't witness personally, but it was it happened while we were in line camping uh, and some news crews came down. Uh, you know, kind of the standard, the local affiliate, what, you know, looking for morning news and the news man who came through kind of asked us, uh, my group, uh, you know, do you think you're weird? What do your parents think about you being here? Um, just really kind of offensive and questions that were more suited to 20 years ago when it wasn't quite so mainstream and kind of, again, someone who just knew his story before he came through and was really rude about it. Um, and, and very uninformed. And, uh, you know, one of our, one of my fellow friends kind of dressed him down in nice. intelligent way of, you know, do, do sport our sports fans weird when they cry about the Super Bowl type way. Um, and as a sports fan that I think that's hilarious because it's absolutely true. Um, and so that was one of the things that just kind of le left a bad taste in our mouths because again, it's, it's so far past that point that if you're still asking if people think they're weird for dressing up and, and camping out for Comic-Con, that you're kind of missed the point. Uh, cause most people know what, what's happening and what you're doing. You know, no one was like, what are you guys waiting in line for? Um, it, so that was a little, a little annoying mostly, um, that he just wasn't doing his job properly. Um, and then I had a couple panels that were really, just just not great. And they didn't, again, it's one of those panels that they don't really understand what Comic-Con is. Um, and they don't, they didn't embrace it as having fun. They just, it was so business. Um, uh, one was the Minority Report panel, which the footage from that was so disappointing um, and really just not great. And then the cast was put in a position where they had to answer questions as if the footage we just saw was great and wonderful and was going to be a hit. 
And, and that was awkward to watch. And it, it, the network put them in a weird position. Not that they could go and not show anything, but it, just putting it a better way. Cause then it, it put them in a position to really be lying to the audience when we're smarter than that. And it disrespected us. I mean, we were sitting through it to be in the room for agent Carter, but, and, and shield, but it was, you know, if you're going to have a crowd sitting through it that, you know, who like superhero stories and, and sci-fi, then try harder was my impression. Um, and the, uh, the colony panel kind of fit in that same category where they just tried too hard. They tried to shill for the show. They, they had a lot of audience plants. One super, super awkward moment that killed the entire panel was, um, they had, uh, Nestor Carbonell come up and ask a question as a crazed fan and ask, Whoa, seriously? Yes. So yes, for people who were not in the room, um, since this may not be part of the panel online, um, the colony footage was amazing. We saw, I believe the first 12 minutes. So before the first act break, it was wonderful. It respects the audience's knowledge and doesn't feel the need to, uh, dump a bunch of exposition on them. And it really just puts you in that world. You know, Sarah Wincallies is in it, Josh Holloway, um, Peter Jacobson, a lot of great actors, looks like great storytelling. You know, no one knows how to do a pilot better than Carl and Cuse or very few people. So that was great. The panel started off wonderfully. And then the audience Q&A started and the second person up was this crazed fan. And it's in a room where there is no camera on the audience Q&A. So it was not Ballroom 20 or Hall H. So, and there's also no question screening in that room. So you don't know if it's really a crazed fan or whatever. He asks Carlton Cuse about the lost ending. So everyone in the audience is kind of assuming that this is an idiot that kind of doesn't get it. And is once again, asking Cuse about lost. Um, and then as it goes on, they're kind of role playing with him. And he's like, if everyone died on the Island, what, why am I here? And Josh Holloway said something along the lines of, Oh, I think I recognize those, um, that eyeliner. Mm-hmm. And, they were they did it so poorly um, for professional actors that you we still thought it was a fan uh, for a very late stage that we still thought they were just stringing this fan along super awkwardly um, and then they then in uniform or in costume uh, colony guards in their red berets came out and dragged him out of the room. Um, and then Nestor Carbonell ended up coming up on stage near the end of the panel. And Q's kind of wrote it off as we couldn't do a Bates motel panel. So this is the Bates motel reunion. Um, and it was just, it was super awkward and it brought everything to a screeching halt. And then they had at least one other plant in the audience, ask a question near the end of the audience Q and a, uh, and it just, it, it was such a business transaction that it was really, almost insulting and they had they had such a launching pad from that footage it was disappointing to see them waste it like that i mean i'll still be watching the show but um again to be in a room with people who just don't really understand what having a panel is about that it's not about you know really it's about selling the show in a nice way and in a uh a fan respecting way that it was just so awkward and you know that bad taste carried over for quite some time we talked about it through the day so that it was just weird (laughs) Yeah, spoiler alert, at Comic-Con, don't have a, a thing where you're making fun of fans. <laughs> you know, we're like, I'll do a character where we insult people who take shows really seriously. That just, Especially if you can't see that it's a bit. And if you there's no camera on his face, most of the audience can't see that it's a bit. So that's horribly misjudged. Yeah, wow. Right. Um, at the at the Gotham panel, they had the, the actor that plays the Riddler come up as the last question. And... 
do a bit. And it worked really well because he played it perfectly. The camera was on him. It lasted 15 seconds, if that. Um, that was perfectly gone, um, perfectly well done. Uh, my only other thing was we also had to sit through the Seth MacFarlane animation block, which was two hours of his three current shows. That was so excruciatingly painful. We had a running joke to see who was going to get lobotomized first. Um, and that was to be in the room for uh, Grimm and Hannibal and Outlander, um, I believe. Yes. Um, and that was, I mean... They were tongue-in-cheek, but making fun of the uh, ASL translator by making her continually translate uh, dick pic and, like, vagina fart over and over. Um, And for a panel that could make it a little bit intelligent, because those are smart people on the stage, including Seth, it was really disappointing to see them revert to balls jokes for the umpteenth time, uh, you know, that they couldn't be better than the footage they were showing. Um, And the times that Seth MacFarlane got to talk about the business and his his career, you know, he's about to tour with the Baltimore Symphony. That's cool. And that's what people want to hear. And they just it, they reverted to to basic humor. And that was just really, again, painful. And even though it's not my type of humor, you can be better than that on a panel. And that was disappointing as well. What about you? Anything that really disappointed you on your end? Yeah, well, there were some uh, definite panels like that for me as well, where, where it's just there was. Just a clear, especially I, I saw a number of panels um, where, like you said, the, the type of humor is playing to this sort of frat boy, uh, very mature, um, just dick jokes over and over and over again um, that in a way that just got old afterwards. Like, if it's really funny, that's great. I will laugh at if if it's really funny. But when you have an audience, like the Comic-Con audience is not the male only like certain age group white male like 20s 30s 40s audience that some of these panels seem to think it is and so when i'm sitting in the the super mansion panel with brian cranston and seth green and some other people and female cosplayers go up there and brian cranston is making jokes about her 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 orbs wanting to get his hands on her orbs. Uh, that's just gross and leery. And when you're surrounded and that, I, I almost wanted to leave Indigo when that was happening because there was enough of an audience there that thought that was funny, that there's like a roar of laughter. But I know I could tell just looking around that I was not the only uncomfortable person there. And this was something I, every year for the past three years, this is my fourth Comic-Con, I've ended the con with the Starship Smackdown, which is super fun. And you take a bunch of starships and there's a panel of spaceshipologists who debate the merits of the various starships and one eventually wins. Um, And it's always been very, yeah, very, if you're being polite, you'd say cheeky humor, but sexist humor. Uh... A lot, a lot of that. Uh, but this year, it was just too much for me because I looked around the room. The room was at least 40, 60 women to men, if not close to 50, 50. Um, and there was one woman on the panel and there were six guys. And so after a while, there's a certain bent to the humor of the panel. It's always the same panel. Um, but they had three guys next to each other that fed off of each other. 
with that stuff to the point where I just, it was gross and not fun. So I just left. And uh, there was also a lack of awareness of gender that came up in the composer panel that uh, was, was really frustrating to me because I've been going to Comic-Con for four years now and there have been music panels, co composition panels each time. Usually there's three. Um, and so that's, you have four or five panelists uh, on each of those three panels each year. And to my knowledge, I could be wrong on this, but I believe there's never been a female composer that they've brought in that time. And so when you have this panel of male, male composers talking about how, you know, femininity shouldn't inform composing for a female action hero because she's not female, she's a badass, um, and that there's no difference between how men compose and how women compose, that's an easy thing to say when you're a white male, middle-aged white male, in a field that is highly dominated by men, like hugely dominated by men. And so to see a, a fan bring up a question about how gender comes into composing for superheroes, especially when female action heroes are so rare, so few and far between, to have a very thoughtful question translated into, oh, no, I didn't think I should compose a sexy theme for her just because she's a woman when the audience question had been about femininity and not at all about sexualizing a, a female action hero, it was very disappointing and just really for me pointed to a larger trend. Cause as soon as I went to that panel, every panel after that, that I was seeing, I was aware of how white and how male and how middle-aged almost all of them were. Uh, so I, that made me really appreciate panels where that didn't happen. Like the production guild panel where the very, literally the first thing that the moderator, who was also a production designer said was to list off, um, several genre geek friendly shows that have really great production design where the, the production designers are, are women and say the panel doesn't reflect it this year. But there's a lot of really, it's a really inclusive job. There's a lot of really great female production designers. There's a lot of really great people of color in this industry. So don't, you know, don't think that it's only white men. There's no reason more panels couldn't be more aware of that. And uh, the demographic for Comic-Con is not what it was 20 years ago. And so that was frustrating. The last thing I'll say is that, like I said earlier, I did cosplay this year. And there were so many wonderful interactions that came from that. It's so much work. It's an insane amount of work. Um, and I was just doing basic stuff, but it's the same amount of work. But also with that comes people who want to, to pose you, who take your picture without asking most, a lot of people don't ask, um, who then ask, um, can I take your picture? And then you say, if you say, okay, they do. And then they demand your name, your information. They're going to put your, your, you up on their web. They haven't asked you if it's okay to put you up on their website, but they're going to, and they want to have your life story to go with it. But at that point, you've already said they can have your picture and they're being such a bully about it. You feel like you can't tell them no. Um, so the, the amount of possessiveness over the cosplayers by the photographers was really jarring. I, I, Whenever I take someone's picture at Comic-Con and post it on my Twitter feed, I have asked them if it's okay for me to take their picture and to post it on Twitter and to put it on Sound on Sight if I end up using it for an article. I did not have a single person say that to me when I was cosplaying for the entire convention. And by the last day I got people, I was Carmen Sandiego, people really liked that costume. I got at least 20, like somewhere between 25 and 40 times where I was stopped for someone to take, asked to take a picture. 
and not once did someone ask if it was okay if they tweeted it or if they did anything with it. Um, and there were people like who wanted to like rearrange your hair and st have you stand in a certain way. Oh, and take off your badge and do this and do that. I had somebody interrupt a conversation I was having with someone I uh, was meeting uh, who was a, a business contact, theoretically. So interrupted our conversation while I was talking to, to ask to take my picture and then was demanding that I stand in a certain way and then move my hair and everything. And I finally had to say, I don't want to before he would stop bullying me about how I should pose for to be free <laughs> content for his website. It was just really remarkable how much of that there is there. So while I was aware of that issue before going, you know, before cosplaying, I did no sense of of the extent of that. And that's with me doing very low key, very, uh, I guess, demure, very covered up costumes. I cannot imagine what it feels like to be one of those people with a much more out there costume, a much more elaborate costume or a much more revealing costume, because it doesn't matter what you're doing. People, um, certain people, certain types of people feel completely comfortable bullying you or, and, and feeling like they can just treat you however they want because they have a camera and you're in a costume. Um, as, as a whole, most of the experiences were very positive and lots of really cute kids responded to my sister cosplayed as characters from Adventure Time. So there were a lot of really adorable kids who had a, got a blast out of her cosplay. And as I said, on the whole, most of the experiences were very positive, but I was not prepared for that side of the convention. Um, and it really was jarring. So I'm, I'm going to be writing that up at Sound On Sight later this week, but uh, it was very jarring. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I saw that happening. Again, I was one of the people similar to yourself who was asking if I could take a picture, if I could post. Um, and if you ask to take a picture, a lot of them were like, oh, do you want to take a picture with me? Um, you know, we can pose. It'll be cool. Uh, and I didn't necessarily want to every time. But I mean, they were very they were very considerate of like, oh, I know I have a cool costume and I would like to share it with you. Um, and, and instead of you just having a picture of me, let's maybe, uh, you know, share share a picture. Which, share the experience, share the moment, yeah. Which is great. I have a picture with some random guy dressed as Thor because um, he was really tall and had long blonde hair and looked like Thor. Um, <laughs> but that, And I was like, I don't really want to take a picture with you, but thank you so much for offering, and I'll hop in, and, and this will be fun, whatever. Um, and it's really, it's just a simple step that people don't think about and people don't consider, and it and it really is unfortunate. Um, yeah, just as, and just to go back with what you were talking about before about the gender uh, not gender inequality, but the gender representation at Comic-Con, um, I really didn't appreciate on the DC TV panels, that last group of five on Saturday night, how overshadowed the women were as the panels went on. Um, it, it, Mar Marina Baccarin didn't even get to speak on the Gotham panel. You know, a, a queen of sci-fi, beloved by mm -hmm. most of the people in that room, didn't get one word in edgewise. And I know it was a short panel and they had to cut... Um, audience Q&A because it was a short panel, but that's kind of unacceptable, especially if you're going to bring that big a cast, uh, you know, make sure the, the women in your cast get to speak. People asked, uh, you know, I've got, I've had a crush on you for so long. Then what's your favorite part of being the character? You know, nothing about the story, nothing about their, their backstory or how they work on the character or anything like that. It's, it's pretty much, you're pretty, uh, let's, let's work this into a question. And I thought that was really insulting. And also in a room where you screen the questions, um, that, that it didn't end up being any any smarter or any more diverse. Every single person that asked a question in Hall H over those two, two and a half hours was a man. 
And there was some diversity in the uh, race department, but there was no diversity in the gender department. It was all male, you know, 20s to 30s, couple younger, couple older. And that was disappointing as well. And that, that whole set of panels fell into the same trap over and over and over again where the guys were bantering and the girls were sitting there looking pretty, hoping, hoping that they got a question directed to them or get a word in edgewise. Um, the only panel that really broke out of that was Arrow. And I think that's because they were drunk, which no judgment here. That was hilarious. At one point, uh, Emily Bett Records dropped the F-bomb and John Barrowman cracked up like a actual 12-year-old, uh, could not control himself. And uh, this is allegedly, but they did post a video of themselves with a tequila, um, include like a tequila relevant caption about an hour before the panel. So uh, which they definitely seemed intoxicated. So I think that played a part. But, you know, when the loosest panel is because they're probably inebriated, that's not a good look. And and for it to happen repeatedly with the WB uh, DCTV panel was just it was disappointing. And it was the last panel I went to. And that was that was just a bummer. Well, and I think they're also there. When you look around the room, there are a lot of women there. There is an audience that is desperate to be catered to who are attending the con really, really is jarring. It's really remarkable when you compare sort of the kinds of questions asked and the sort of atmosphere created by certain panels, certain panelists and certain moderators as compared to others. Definitely. I completely agree. Yeah. Well, are you planning to go back next year? Uh, I am. I I definitely would love to go back. Um, I mean, it's definitely a question of how many vacation days I'd like to take um, to basically then from my full-time job to then basically go, Uh, put myself through the ringer because I do feel like I was hit by a Mack truck and I'm pretty sure I'll be sick all week. I lost my voice after the Doctor Who panel on Thursday and then uh, just proceeded to go downhill from there. You know, when you don't sleep more than three hours for four or five days in a row, it it does take its toll on you. But I think it's also worth it, which says a lot. Um, You know, if I'm I'm willing to put myself through that and and feel kind of as unhealthy and fatigued as I do at this point, um, I, and I'm still so enthusiastic about going back and experiencing it in a different way or in a new way, or even in the same way, um, that it really does say a lot about what type of experience it was and, and how great a time I had, um, even if there were, you know, things I missed out on or, or things that I was just too tired to get to. Yeah, it is. It's incredibly draining. And, um, for those who are able to, depending on how much, uh, how many, how many days one gets for off for work or how much flexibility one you have in your work, like for for example, I made sure I rescheduled all my lessons for today because I'm going to be teaching a nine hour day tomorrow, or sorry, a twelve hour day tomorrow, nine to nine with very few breaks. Um, but I knew if I had to work today after getting in at four in the morning, I would be sick all week. So uh, I've been in your shoes. I've had that experience. Um, It is very draining. If you can take a day on either end, it's amazing. Um, But a lot of people can't. Uh, So you still, you know, do what you can to make it, make it a worthwhile and fun experience. But I'm glad you had a good time and I look forward to hanging out with you there next year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And we, completely failed at two people who had never met before to take a picture together. So yep, we yep, have I'm, a checklist next year. Um, yeah. And maybe I'll even break out some, some cosplaying for sure. I, I would love to hear. I think anybody who's curious about it should do it um, because it, it really opens your eyes. And so, yeah, I, I encourage people to cut, maybe don't do all four days because that takes a crap ton of work. Um, but yeah, it really, I, I rec I recommend it. I would love to hear your thoughts if you do so next year. 
But for now, that will wrap up our much longer than anticipated um, Comic-Con wrap up. Whitney, where can our listeners find you in your work online? Uh, hi, Kate. Yeah, so they can list, find my work online at my author link on Sound On Sight. That is uh, chock full of lovely True Detective reviews right now and uh i'll look back at firefly for anybody who's listening to this and is a fan which is probably most people if they've made it this far into our comic-con um long talk and on twitter at at whitney m02 um hi to any comic-con followers i picked up there were quite a few of you so that's fun but yeah uh check out my work and and say hi on twitter Awesome. And thank you again, Whitney, so much for coming on um, and for covering Comic-Con for us this year. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Televerse. Mm-hmm.